0: So wanting to convince a friend that it is to their best interest, you can turn it down just a little bit, to become a Christian. So what would you highlight? Let me ask that a question. You're convincing a friend. You really need to become a Christian. You're selling it, if you will. And by the way, that's all right. We should be selling it. I know that word's kind of a crass word, but... Yes, of course. We give a defense for what we believe and we desire others to believe it because we believe it's good news. And what friend and what person withholds good news? So so imagine yourself in the situation and you're convincing this friend to become a Christian. Now, ask yourself, what would you highlight? What would be on your mind? What would you share with them? How does it benefit you? Eternal life, would you talk about that? Probably. Maybe peace of mind. Maybe your sense of calling and purpose. You know, the idea that I'm lost and now I'm found. This idea that I've, I've come to my own, somehow I've, I've become more comfortable in my own skin. You could talk about that. You've discovered wisdom, wisdom from God and in, in the gospel and in the scriptures and the wisdom that gives me directions about how to live my life. Again, I'm not aimlessly walking around. Maybe you'll just talk about a better life, better relationships, check, better marriage, check. I can't tell you as a pastor how many times over the 28 years I have seen marriages absolutely saved by the gospel, just a total new way of approaching a relationship. The gospel's that radical. Yeah, check. Maybe healing. That God will heal us and he can heal us and become a Christian because he'll heal you of all your problems and infirmities. Now, some of you in this room know there's a kind of now not yetness to that, but we do believe in healing. Well, let me say that every one of those answers, there's a correctness to it. And yet our passage today wants to suggest that if that's all you've said... You have totally missed, and they would have totally missed the ultimate benefit. Maybe I'll say it this way. Let's say you're suffering a mental illness, or maybe cancer, or a broken relationship, or you're facing a financial crisis today. Maybe you're jobless. Maybe you're experiencing fear and anxiety. And so, in your suffering... You decide to pray and what will you pray for I suspect and if you think about this week really think about it think about your prayers this week what did you pray for healing maybe a job money to pay the bills reconciliation with a person that you're you're estranged with prayer for your children for their Happiness for there to get into the school for them to to get along with their brother and sister Again all valid prayers But it's not the prayer of all prayers There's something about us in our mentality that wants to miss that as a Christian we discern today that that at the heart and soul of Christianity is something so great and so beneficial that it is the cardinal benefit that begets all other benefits. And yet we tend to think of it so lightly. That's what Matthew's trying to tell us today in recounting this incredibly interesting and yet ironic story of a healing of a paralytic that didn't go the direction that maybe you thought it would. Today we come to what might be the climax of a series, if you remember, of episodes that describe Christ's great authority and his great power to fix our greatest problems, struggles, and sources of suffering in this life. In chapter 8, verse 17, it recounts these three miracles of healing where his power and authority over health-related diseases and crises are, are shown to be evident. This is followed by a call to follow Christ. I want you to notice this call to follow Christ, to be a disciple of Christ, is interwoven between these series. And so you have 817, the three miracles. 1822 and 8, you have the following of Christ's call. Then 23 through 27, again, his authority and power over a storm and natural elements. That is a natural disaster, a hurricane. And he calms it with a word. And so we see the benefit of having Christ in our boat, so to speak. And then in 2834, not only is it our medical conditions and our bodily diseases and problems, not only is it the natural disasters, now it's the evil spirits, the inward and spiritual reality that he resolves for us. And that brings us then to today, yet another healing. But today, the healing, like all the other things that he has accomplished, is not at the focal point. Forgivenesses. And then a call to follow Christ again. The first call, let me show you my authority and my power. And it's over everything in the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil. Only Christ we've seen can deliver us from the evil of the curses, bodily, natural disasters, inward, spiritual, relational. And it's true. Becoming a Christian, that happens. But the message that's been carefully implanted in the sequence of events where you get to the crescendo here is... But you've forgotten everything you've lost everything if you don't understand the power and the authority of Christ to forgive you of your sin there's clearly an intended order to this progression from outward to inward from physical to spiritual but now from natural to redemptive today we discern the ultimate meaning of all the miracles in everything that Christ came to do. It's that big a deal. Let's pray. Help us, Lord, to believe this, not just to assent to it, but to receive it, and to rest on it, and to alter our lives because of it. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, okay, here's what you see quite easily from the text that was read for you today obviously we're told first of all that he enters into his quote own city that's Capernaum Bethlehem is where he was born Nazareth is where he was reared but in his majority of his adult life Capernaum was his residence he's gone home and always when he goes home there seems to be a conflict A disconnect between who Christ is before God and the world and who Christ is to those who grew up or who see him in a more natural environment and the focus of the narrative notice carefully we can tell a lot by the way about the focus of of a narrative especially when you're reading the Gospels because you know the Gospels they all speak to the same facts but they order them differently they redact them or edit them differently so that They all have a purpose for telling you about these narratives. Don't ever be surprised when you see uh, something that's said differently in one Gospel than the other like a different timing or a different location or whatever. Of course there is. These are not historical books. These are theological books. They are about Christ and who He is. And they're telling you the facts of the story of Christ but they're putting it in an order And they're commenting on it in order to make the point of their theological treaties, if you will, about Christ. And so it's by what Matthew omits in comparison to Mark and Luke's account that gets my attention, that helps me understand what God wants me to get from this passage. I see the discrepancies as great. They're helps for me. It focuses me. On the facts and the meaning of those facts from from Matthew's point of view, and here's what we see: in this passage in Matthew, very little is said about how the paralytic was brought to him. Remember how it was that that uh, in Matthew, and I mean in Luke and Mark, tell the story about the four men letting him down through the roof and all that kind of stuff. Nothing there. Behold, they were bringing to him a paralytic laying on a bed. That's it. Matthew's not wanting you to get focused on that how they brought him Notice here they saw Jesus saw their faith Matthew only retains this phrase from Mark as referring to the impact the four men and the paralytic had upon Christ He saw their faith that's it But what does Matthew But what Matthew does to accentuate what he wants you to get is also clear What is not as emphasized in the other accounts, but is emphasized here, is the controversy. There's a great controversy that this event aroused in the people around him. And as we will see through the controversy, a very important truth is illustrated by Matthew, which is at the heart of what is throughout this section of Matthew, a call to follow Christ. So what was the controversy? Verse 3. The controversy was the accusation that scribes think that Jesus is a blasphemer. Now blasphemy is to bring injury or insult to someone. It's to denigrate someone, translated at times slander or to deride or to revile. They were reviling Christ, they were were insulting him, they were they were and here particularly though it's not Christ that they were insulting that they saw him insulting Christ they're saying is insulting God reviling God slandering God that was a great and horrible sin of course and so in Matthew 26 verse 65 said of Christ when he admits to being the messiah they when he said that That was blaspheming God. They all knew the Messiah was God on earth appearing. How dare this man from Capernaum, this guy that I know is over here, just a, you know, a builder of cabinets. How dare him say such things? John 10, 36. It's said of Christ that he blasphemed God when he admits to being God's son. And so we see how it was that, that there's a controversy. Now, why? What, what was the occasion? What was the crime? <laughs> Again, kind of a, an irony here, isn't it? I mean, the crime on the surface was he healed some people, he healed a paral- paralytic. I mean, come on. That's great stuff. But you see, that's not the focus of Matthew. Yeah, 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 he healed them is what Matthew's saying right here. Yeah, 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 I've already shown you that. Yeah, he's got authority and power over all medical diseases and infirmaries and problems. He's got power and authority over the natural disasters, even over the spirits and the the demons. He's got power over that. But he goes back to this account, and they're all up in arms. For instead of saying, arise and walk, he says, Your sins are forgiven. Now, why did Jesus say it that way? Why did Matthew want to make sure you slow down and think about that? Is Jesus teaching that all illness is the direct result of a specific sin? Let's make this clear. Absolutely not. That's not the point. That they did something specific that resulted in the consequence of this Paral- paral- paralytic situation. I mean, it would have been true. Is, it, is there? Are is there times in a Christian life when you can can actually say that? Yeah, sure. You get drunk on saturday Friday night and you're going to have a hangover Saturday morning, right? You know, that's that's one of those situations where you can draw a direct correlation. You know, if the paralytic had been out there, I don't know you know high on drugs and he and he jumped off a rooftop in his insanity and he broke his back then maybe you could say yeah sure there's a one-to-one correlation between the sin of and his paralysis but but even then you got to be careful i hear sometimes this subtle condemnation as well you know oh well you you've got a a heart problem or you've got an issue with cancer or whatever and well it's your lifestyle it's your this it's your that we get a lot of moralizing out there right now people blaming you for all of this stuff and you know that's just not true you can't go from a one-to-one correlation I mean how come it is that some people are or of this body type or of this lifestyle but they don't have cancer or they don't have a heart problem now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to be doctor here, and I know the doctors here. Where are you, C.J.? I saw you today. I mean, go, but please don't denigrate the the importance of eating good food and doing that. Yeah, I'm not doing that at all. That's not my point. We just got to be careful. This is not what Christ is saying. I could see any many a uh, quote good sermon taken off right here, and I don't want to. I don't want you to go there. That would totally denigrate what this passage is about. This is not teaching that an illness is the direct result of a specific sin. Jesus said to his disciples, Rabbi, who sinned that this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed to him. That's the kind of way that the scripture envisions these things, that God has got a purpose in the suffering. Is it that Jesus is teaching that he comes to cure the soul but not the body? Is this the Platonic Jesus? Absolutely not. Later, he does, in fact, heal the paralytic. And in heaven, of course, we know that our bodies will be resurrected. There is no such thing as a Platonic Christ, a Christ who somehow sees the material world as evil or fleshly in an evil way. Absolutely not. The body is revered in Scripture. as part of the soul you know you you and I use soul often really in the way you should use spirit biblically a good uh anthropology if you will a good understanding of humanity would be that we are all souls living souls both body and spirit soul I could prove that in scripture go back to the Hebrew word nefesh and the creation of Adam and I could show you that but that's not the point So, no, this is not uh, Christ, the Platonic Christ. So, what is it going on? What's the purpose of all this passage? Well, what we see is that Christ is revealing something about his ultimate purpose. And everything he does is directly related to this ultimate benefit. To the greatest benefit that begets all the other benefits that you pray for kind of benefit this is what we call the cardinal benefit the original benefit you know we talk about cardinal sin or original sin and it's that sin that begets all other sins small s every sin we do the particular sins are derived from the quote original sin or that source Sin that creates all other sinfulness. Well, you have the same kind of logic, the same kind of dynamic developing here when it comes to benefits. There is a cardinal or original benefit that begets all other benefits, as related to healing and rescue and, and all the other things that we might pray for. You see, sin is the cause. Of the curses. And yet sin in itself is not the ultimate problem. It's it's what causes the ultimate problem, which is God's wrath. There it is. Now what is wrath? Paul starts his whole gospel, his whole epistle in, in, in Romans 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God has appeared before all men. If you read Paul and his understanding of wrath rightly through the book of of, of Romans, what you'll discern is wrath is really synonymous to justice, the justice of God. Now, we, we talk a lot about justice today. It is a very important and biblical word. But at the heart of justice is there's an offense. There's something offensive, something, well, maybe blaspheming of the dignity of another person. And what resolves that injustice is justice. But justice is resolved in what? A pardon or a a declaration of not guilty or a penalty for that guilt. Now, this is the way that life works, not just the gospel, but everything in life. And so think about this for a minute. I mean, here we have a situation where where forgiveness is offensive to God, saith the scribes and the Pharisees, because they rightly understand that the ultimate and cardinal offense is the rejection and rebellion and the blaspheming and the slandering and the making false gods to compete against the true god kinds of sins that original sin god is justifiably offended this is a really hard concept for us to talk about in some ways the modern era has made it a little simpler I mean for years and years and years the complaint was always to me that God is not loving enough. They would people would come to me and read the Old Testament, they would see a God of justice and they'd hear about wrath and things like that in the New Testament and they would say I I just can't I can't live with a God like that. In the last maybe 10 maybe 5 years, I can think of many people I've engaged out there. And I've always been surprised I'm sorry, they said. I'm thinking of a man right now having a cup of, of coffee with him. And we're talking about the gospel. And I'm sharing with him the gospel and the good news of grace. And I'm emphasizing grace and grace and grace. And I'm just going along that line. And he comes to me and says, but pastor, I'm sorry. I got a problem with grace. So what are you talking about? A problem with grace? Who doesn't want grace? Well, I'll tell you who, does, who, does, who, who wants grace, Who? Someone who is convicted that they've offended God and they're hoping and praying like, you know what, that God's going to forgive them. But here's a person, much like many people, who say, I have a problem with a God of grace. Where you guys tell me that a murderer, someone who would go out and slaughter, I don't know, a family or something, could go to heaven. And yet here there's a person over here that goes to church and don't go to church, you know they can't go to heaven. <laughs> that's kind of ouch, isn't it? I mean, I, I felt it. Uh, ooh, ooh, that, that's, a, that's a serious issue, isn't it? Th- there seems to be an inequality. There seems to be injustice here. How can a, a person, a murderer, just by, you know, on his deathbed, praying to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, go to eternal life in heaven? And, and yet, how can a person over here who every day of his life, you know, lives a decent life, but because he doesn't live the dogma of the church or something, you know, he's, he's going to hell. Oh man, I'm getting myself into it here, aren't I? <laughs> I hope you feel the nervousness of that. I mean, we got an issue here. And I don't know how to resolve this issue except by what this passage is asking us to believe. And we just can't sugarcoat it. That God is justifiably offended. The greatest sin, the most ultimate sin of all sins, is to offend God. That's the sin that brings upon us all the curses of this life. Now you say, but hold it. <laughs> Why? What's going on here? Who can forgive sins but God alone, said the scribes? They got it, guys. They got it. They have good theology here. How can you possibly invite this man or or, or declare this man, your sins are forgiven, except that you are God? What they weren't arguing is that that God had rights to be forgiving you, only God had the right to forgive you because only God, only God because he's God can be offended by the way in which you have treated him the way God is, with an eternal penalty attached to it. Only God can be that way because God is God. You say, but what makes God so much more righteous? (laughs) You just answered your question. I mean, who is God for you? Who is he? If God is God, who is he? He's the creator. He made everything we adored this morning. He made it out of nothing. Absolutely nothing. With a mere word, he made this this incredible thing that we were just booing on over this morning in our call to worship. Singing about in our call to worship. He made it. It came from his beautiful mind. A loving mind. A gracious mind his mind to us by creation we read in Psalms Paul repeats that in Romans chapter 1 as you'll see why what stands behind this otherwise true statement your sins are forgiven well the answer is to forgive or to pardon assumes an injustice a wrong that is highly maybe more even eternally offensive Because God is the only eternal person you have ever sinned against. God, well, I guess we're all eternal in a sense. But there is no one that you've offended that is the creator God. There's no one that you've offended that has been perfectly good and loving and merciful to you. No one who has the authority and the power to deliver you from evil. And is eager and willing to do so. This God is perfect and he is our creator. We owe our breath to him, much less all the wonderful things while we're breathing every day. Think about that metaphor. I I mean, you know, recently I had this issue with my AFib and it affected my breathing and I'd go to bed and I'd be (sighs) trying to force myself to believe and I remember thinking, man, I've never thought about breath before. Breath is cool, I want breath. If you've experienced asthma, you know what I'm talking about. Many of the people that are most afraid of of this era that we have, the mask area of COVID, well, it's the mask that's just terrifying for an asthma in some instances. Breath is a gift of God, and only God can give it to me. That's who this God is. And so to forgive assumes an injustice and the one wronged, offended, is the only person that can forgive or pardon. Justice needs to be served even if to be recognized by the one offended. What was the offense? Again, let me go to it. Romans 1.18. For the wrath, think justice. The justice of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth The fact i'll use a a modern term the fact what is the fact that they suppress for what can be known about god is plain because god has shown it to him for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has made so they are without excuse For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. There it is. There's the problem. Every day of our life, everything we enjoy, our breath on, is a direct result of communion with God. Communion with God. Because God is God. A creator and sustainer of everything we love and need. And so we exchanged his glory. It's almost, I mean, how can you describe this? To take this God and say, ah, you're irrelevant. Ah, I prefer this God of my own making. I'm going to worship this institution and that institution and this popular figure or that popular figure. I'm going to worship this methodology or that work methodology. We make everything else into what we see as the great benefit to be reconciled with. And that's typically what we pray for. We pray to be reconciled whatever that means to our gods. God, help me make an A on this test. Reconcile me to this God. God, help me Help this, do this, be with the doctor when you need surgery, da, 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 all good prayers, except would they become and replace the ultimate prayer. God, be reconciled to me. Actually, no, that's the wrong way to say it. It's not God reconciling me. That made me the offended party. As John Calvin said it, the only way of obtaining deliverance from all evils is to have God reconciled to us. God needs to be reconciled to me. This is an incredible statement. The scribes got it, and they were offended that a man from Capernaum would dare to forgive sins that only God can forgive. They recognize exactly what Jesus was doing. He was talking about himself as God, and he forgave sins. We are guilty of an injustice like no other injustice. It is so wrong, and so bitter, and so downright stupid that we would possibly do anything less. They glorify God and give him thanks for all things and manners in which he's revealed himself to us. And my highest aim and most intensely glorious glory would be to say that I know God and God knows me and we're good together. It's good that we have intimacy and that intimacy is a good intimacy. We're reconciled. Even the crowds misunderstood. For they were filled with awe. This, remember, has been part of the pattern of Matthew. This everyone reacting with awe. Filled with awe. And they glorified God who had given such authority to a human being. <laughs> to, a, to a human being. Beings, plural. In other words, they were off on a freak show watching a magic show. Glorifying God for it. They missed it. It was God who was pardoning sins. God in Christ appearing. And so notice the defense of Christ. It should be clear now as I've made all these comments. By raising the rhetorical question, Jesus reveals something about his identity and purpose. He says, why do you think evil thoughts in your hearts? For which is easier, if I'm God, of course, to say your sins are forgiven or to say stand up and walk? Here's the key. The two are related, you see. Forgiveness begets healing. Cardinal sin begets actual sins. Cardinal righteousness, if you will, or justice begets just and good rewards. And so too, forgiveness begets the removal of the curse of God's wrath, which is your greatest enemy. There's no enemy you, you, you face greater than the enemy of God's wrath. We were born in enmity with God, saith the scripture, because of our rejection of him. Not because of something happened in the womb of your mother. Not that kind. But we were born by our nature after Adam to reject and be thankless to God. We need forgiveness. Pardon. By raising this question, you see, we see what's going on here, and he explains this so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he then said to them, "Paralytic, stand up, take your bed, and go to your home. You're forgiven. Curses removed. We can't ever forget that correlation ever again." So what do we do with this? How do we understand such an amazing statement? It should so redirect our lives, don't you think? The point of this narrative is that the problem of sin, though not as apparent to our eyes as paralysis is, not as apparent to our eyes as me needing this job or me getting healed of this disease or me, 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 me getting this, 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 this. Though not as apparent to the eye, it is most fundamental. Our problem is sin and God's justice that awaits it. Justified justice. Indeed, as becomes obvious as the gospel proceeds, for the fundamental problem of the humanity that Jesus has come to counteract in this passage revealed, compared to the healings, the forgiveness of sins is by far greater. Gift. Jesus has brought in his ministry. The healings performed by Jesus are signs of imminent defeat of sin and the power of evil and all the curses that we pray for. There is this correlation of being estranged with God and our suffering. There is this fundamental correlation between our being estranged with God and our suffering. Again, not necessarily a one-to-one correlation, but a correlation always. Therefore, if that's true, to be reconciled to God solves all our problems. Have you thought about that? It is the ultimate benefit that begets all other benefits because it deals with the ultimate problem that begets all problems. The problem of our rebelling against God and God, who happens to be the giver and sustainer of abundant and eternal life, and is justifiable off offense at our injustice against Him for our rebellion. That is what we need most. That's what your children need most. That's what your soul needs most to be refreshed in every day, every moment of the day. There's nothing more sacred to the Christian who understands the, the very nature and the facts of the world from the Scripture's point of view as to be in rich and good and positive communion with God. Nothing would drive us harder. Nothing would be our prayer more. How would it impact our prayers? Our expense of time and money, our devotion to our friends? How would it impact us? If we really believe that. Have we perhaps even in our Christendom world become like the neighbors of Jesus in Capernaum who can but see a man doing good things and fail to see what he came to do most importantly which is to reconcile us with God. There's so much that correlates to this and how this would change our lives. Things that are ultimately important to us, you would think, listening to us and our rhetoric, become penultimate at best. We would never sacrifice, ever sacrifice, a platform and an ability or or the possibility of speaking the truth of the gospel into the life of a friend or a colleague. We would never, ever lose that opportunity for some penultimate opportunity that we have with this friend. You see what I'm saying? We see it in our public rhetoric today, in our use of Facebook. Why would I ever say a word that could be a stumbling block to one day me sharing Christ with this person? I don't care what this person is doing. To call out anybody in a way that would in any way hinder my opportunity. Now that doesn't mean we don't call people out, but you can do it so differently. One on one, et cetera. Or think about how it would change the relationship of our family with each other, with our relationship with our children and what we do with them, what we get excited about. If communion with God is so vital and important, would it warrant 15 minutes in the morning to catechize them, starting at a young age? Would it warrant time on a Wednesday night to go to a class on communion with God? Now, I know. I'm really meddling now. So be it. Let God be your judge, not me. What is important to us? I know there are many ways to, to, to do that, okay? that. Please don't hear me. I'm not, I could never buy my observation. I'm, I'm getting really messy, but I'm just going to get messy. The, I can't judge anyone for why you didn't catechize last night or yesterday. I can't judge anyone for why you didn't show up for maybe an opportunity to learn about communion with God. I can't do that. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know your situations. I don't know any of that. I don't raise it for that reason. Everyone's responsible to God to find ways of communing with God if you're a Christian. And you've got to make parties how to do it all. I, I don't want to, if you were to treat, if you were to hear what I'm saying like that, it was so trivialized what I'm saying. What I'm really saying is look at your life as a whole. Look at where priorities are. Look at where my prayers are. Look at what our priorities are for our church and what we are, what our church to be doing and talking about. Look at those things in a bigger sense, a holistic sense, and ask yourself the question, can you discern that the greatest benefit that I and my children and my world need is communion with God. That's what I'm asking. That's all I'm asking. But to ask it, you gotta get real <laughs> and really ask the question. Real back last week. I'm doing it and I'm feeling a little bit wrong. And what my parties have been and what I think are the greatest benefits that I want. And yes, I'm saved by grace through faith alone. When we admit and confess that I have not made God in my communion with him my highest priority for my life, my work, my purpose, my vocation, everything. I go and confess that to God and this table comes in response and says, good news. Jesus did make communion with his father, his highest priority. And he did it for you that you might be saved by grace through faith alone. Now. Receive that. Rest in that. You're a forgiven Christian. And you have all the benefits of God. But there is a reality, that communion, that still holds true. And if we understood facts, the facts of life, we would hold it to be true. Amen.